From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you 80% of banks will disappear, according to Gartner. Grab and MasterCard go for the unbanked. And what the fuck is Initiative Q? All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 267 of Fintech Insider. That's 267 already. Can you believe it? Uh, I'm Simon Taylor, your host for today, and I'm joined by my wonderful colleague and co-host for the day, Lady Glyptus. And you'll be bringing the fireworks to today's show. I'll do my best, Simon. I'll do my best, although I'm a little bit jet-lagged still, working the sort of Cybos after effects out of my system, but I'll do my best. After effects of Cybos alcohol and jet-lag. I was just going to say jet lag, but sure, whatever. <laughs> transaction uh, bankers, alcohol and jet lag. The transaction bankers know how to party, right? Um, and um, fresh back from Money 2020 as well, where uh, you will hear in our feed. Our last two shows were the FN debate and the live show, so do check those out if you haven't already. Um, and as always, we're coming to you live from the beautiful 11FS office in WeWork Old Gate, London, England. Don't forget, if you have any questions for us, drop us an email, podcast at 11FS.com or find us on social media. Um, but we're not alone. Uh, we're joined in the room, as usual, by some fantastic guests. First up, we have uh, Max. I don't know how to say your last name. The CEO try of it, Fin. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to try it. Okay, Rufaga. Yeah, you nailed it. Well done. Seriously. Yeah. In your face, Mr. Breer. Uh, <laughs> for those who don't know, he he's famous for butchering names. CEO of Finimize. Remind listeners what Finimize does. Sure. So Finimize is a platform that provides information and tools for people to make more informed financial decisions, probably most famous for our financial newsletter and recently also released an app with a bunch of other products. Brilliant. Great to have you on the show, Max. And Hussein Kasai, have I got that right? More or less. Oh, damn it. Uh, you're the CEO of Onfido. Uh, remind everybody who Onfido is if they live under a rock. <laughs> At times. So we help businesses verify the government IDs and the facial recognition of consumers of fintech companies that are being onboarded. Brilliant. And not to be outdone, and uh, last but by absolutely no means least, uh, is Lisa Jacobs, who is the CSO of Funding Circle. How are you, Lisa? Very well. It's a nice, easy name for you after those two as well. <laughs> Thank you for that. I feel complimented by your name. Uh, I really do. Um, so, and, and of course, again, for people who live under a rock that grows moss, who are Funding Circle? Um, we are a platform for small businesses to borrow money directly from a range of different investors, retail, institutional um, and government. Brilliant. Enough with stretching rock metaphors. And let's move on to um, the next story with Dwayne Johnson's help. Um, this story comes from... <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help that. Um, this story comes from the Business Times. Um, so grab a deal to give MasterCards uh, to millions without bank accounts. So Singapore-based Grab, who, who are a bit like Uber, um, I think actually acquired the Uber business uh, in the region as well. They're a taxi booking app, but they're in- expanding into areas like food delivery, parcel delivery, and financial services. So they've partnered with MasterCard to issue virtual and physical prepaid cards tailored to Southeast Asian customers with the aim of expanding the use of their digital wallet and helping unbanked users transact online. Now, the key here is they're hoping to leverage about 110 million app users they have and a network of MasterCard merchants. Customers can top up their cards using cash through agents. Uh, drivers and merchants can use the GrabPay platform. Because 
cash is still huge in Southeast Asia, making the region a challenge for e-commerce generally. So for the first time, they say these unbanked and underbanked users will be able to use virtual and physical cards to buy things online. What do we think about this one, folks? Is this following the lead from some of the Chinese giants? Is is cash in that region really key? And, and what do we think about big tech entering the market? Any thoughts? I think it's really exciting, actually, because I think it's what financial services fintech should be doing. It's um, supporting the underbanked, the financial inclusion. So it gets me pretty excited. I think it's quite a smart strategy as well because of the uniqueness of that market. You know, they don't actually have a banking network. There aren't branch networks. And what Grab have been able to do is make this network through their agents, through their drivers, through the merchants, and basically utilize that. And it's kind of similar to what um, M-Pesa did in Kenya. And they kind of had this network through mobile payments. And that had huge benefit. Um, in financial inclusion, starting people with credit footprints, allowing people to access online tools. So I think it's really cool. I think it's really exciting. I agree. Uh, I think it's interesting um, from uh, Grab and uh, also Uber, because I think Uber actually still owns a 30% stake in uh, in Grab. And I think in, 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 uh, it's interesting because uh, there are essentially 70, 70% of the Southeast Asians are unbanked and 90% don't have a card. Um, so I think this like lays a really interesting foundation for Grab to then sort of use that as a platform to sell on or cross-sell or upsell further services. Uh, and then Uber obviously can take some of the learnings into other markets. But I think sort of uh, the more interesting point actually from our point of view is uh, that MasterCard is chasing the horse after it's bolted. Um, so they've been really trying to get into um, into China uh, and they've failed uh, just like Visa and, uh, and American Express have uh, because of uh, China Union Pay and now Alipay and, and the likes of them. And so I think from MasterCard's point of view, it's actually more of an interesting play because they're trying to tell investors, actually, we are growing. We are compensating for the lack of growth in China. Um, and so they're essentially using this distribution platform from Grab. So it's quite clever, but probably um, won't be enough to sort of compensate for the lack of growth in China. And it's an interesting play in terms of, great, you've got you've got the, the sort of PR inches and, and you've got to, um, to show yourself to be a sort of good corporate citizen. Uh, we saw Uber being a massive acquirer of bank accounts for their drivers, and, and you would expect this to play out mostly on the driver side rather than the user side in terms of traction. And then the question is, will they capture a sort of remittance market, uh, in which case it might become a very interesting play, more for Grab than MasterCard, or will it be just a thing that just evens out and then not, not very much growth happens? Exactly. It's definitely interesting in a number of ways and two specific ones. One is the the fintech angle, where it's no longer specific industries that are seen as it's their place to offer financial services. So more and more companies are now seeing their, their role as being able to offer and extend financial services. And it's only the beginning. You know, we're going to see more and more of these tech giants in a big way, be it Amazon, uh, Google, Apple, they already have and many more yet to come uh, from a consumer perspective it is we're getting to a point whereby now that we've entered this digital age and the means by which users are able to be onboarded in a sort of secure way digitally it just means you no longer need the traditional bricks and mortar institutions like banks mainstream banks to offer these services and it's what consumers want and it's i'm sure what we're going to increasingly see from a strategic standpoint it's also really interesting because we were always taught that you should just focus on one thing Mm -hmm. but it's all 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 the sort of uh, poster child examples are the opposite of that wechat uh, amazon 
uh, Google, Apple, they're all sort of crossing and even Revolut did some of these new startups. They're crossing many different use cases. But those are platform businesses, right? So a platform business can do that. But typically, a platform business has a beachhead. It starts with one thing that it really nailed. Facebook, it was they started in the universities and the colleges. That's what they did really well. They then became the connector of people. And then they added on a whole bunch of other things like the timeline and the feed. But actually, those things came many, many years later. Amazon starts as selling books online, but we look at it 15, 20 years on and we go, oh, well, it does all of these things. So when you're starting a company, it probably does make a lot of sense to do one thing extremely well. But for the big tech players, well, they're in a different position because they've established their beachhead. They've gained critical mass in terms of user adoption and grabber in that position too. They've gained that critical mass of user adoption. And then what you see is that Actually, finance becomes a part of the big tech value chain in the same way that servicing your customer does, in the same way that managing HR does. Like Financing just becomes a thing that companies do because it's not done well for their customer base, for such a large section of their customer base. But that's the clincher, right? Because unless they also do it well, they have the, the fact that they have positioning doesn't necessarily translate into success. And some of the examples you, uh, you referenced are poster children for doing a platform business well, one of them may have reached a sort of second phase in, in their history. I wonder which one. Um, but, but it will be an interesting question. They have done the obvious next thing to capture the rest of the value chain of the, of the audience they have. Will they do it well? Have they read the, the need correctly? Will they follow the money correctly? It will be an interesting one to watch. Totally agree. I think it's about, you know, as you say, it's, they've built a network, they've built this captive network, they have permission to play in other areas because they're delivering such a great service in that core beachhead product. And all of these platforms have tried stuff that fails, right? You know, there's lots of examples. You look at Amazon, the stuff that all, all the stuff they've done, which has failed, but actually have created so many other things which add value. And I think this is exactly um, what, um, what Grab are doing here. And to your point around, you know, it is financial services becomes part of the customer proposition. You have the H&M Klarna part and you have lots more of these which are just becoming in order to serve that customer better I can create a better proposition around how they pay around around, around that side so it gets ingrained with it it's also the customer relationship and owning that and in some parts if mainstream financial institutions haven't offered the services that these consumers were asking for and now these newer platforms whether we call them platforms or not is a different thing are now able to offer it it shows that they're able to better fulfill a gap that the incumbents haven't been able to and it's that consumer share and um, experience whereby as as i pay with uber right now i don't even think about it it's, it's, it's more automated and then it's sort of at the back of my mind well, and that's your point i think about going the end to, to end journey more. and i like what lisa was saying then about the h&m partnership is Klarna are building an end-to-end journey where i'm not thinking about the payment i'm thinking about my relationship with h&m and the clothing i'm going to get and you know it's this end-to-end experience and i talked to a lot of banks who are still stuck in the you know what's the app we're going to build with our logo on it and it's no, you're missing it. You're a piece of an, an end-to-end puzzle. So how are you thinking in those end-to-end journeys? And you know, the, the tech platforms are because they, they've got the customer captive. I think a lot of incumbent banks are in this position where they thought they had the customer captive, but there's a customer here, especially in the sharing economy, especially in emerging markets, 
that they're not serving at all, that, that have needs that are not only unmet, but woefully underserved. And so you find these tech players in an interesting place to I mean, the, to the challenge becomes profitability, right? There is The reason that quite a lot of these segments are underserved is because they are unprofitable for the traditional banking segment. It's sad, it's horrible, but it's true. That it doesn't the, have to be. Yeah, Historically, it has been in a non-digital sense, whereby if you had to go into a bank and someone had to see you face-to-face and it cost them $20, $30 to onboard you, well, these online platforms are doing the same for a fraction of that. And that means they can service the bottom of the pyramid very profitably, be it Tala giving micro loans across emerging markets, Grab being able to offer these financial services by partnering with MasterCard. Those technologies have always been there. It's just these are the first movers that are making the most of those, uh, whereas the others are being left behind. Well, they're seeing the opportunity and it supports their core business in a way that it doesn't for the big banks because for the big banks, they've got this, this, uh, this legacy that's holding them back rather than letting them move forward, right? In a lot of cases, it's uh, it's blocking them from being able to acquire customers at that that di- price differentiator, uh, that price level, uh, that cost of acquisition, versus these big techs who, but well, they were born digital, so of course they're going to use whatever's digital and off the shelves. It's a Mastercard partnership. Yes, Grab is born digital. Yes, there is a platform there. But let's not underestimate the amount of traditional rails that are being used. So I totally agree with you saying this is an opportunity to make it profitable. However, we don't have necessarily the detail of how the partnership is structured and where the processing will be done. There is a danger that it won't be profitable. And that's the clincher. If they don't manage to crack it, the next guys will because there is a lot of a lot of value to be added and a lot of good to be done, but it has to be done at a great I scale. Think, I think that's the interesting point. I think, um, yes, there's a strand of, uh, even in fintech, you know, you have um, Square, Klarna, Robinhood now doing their own clearing business of owning the full value chain. But I actually question whether that's the case here because they're not building a payment system. They're just partnering up with MasterCard. So I'm actually not really sure that you can really compare the, the two. I'd be curious what your thoughts are. I think they're kind of, much, much more shallow than what sort of Robinhood is doing, for example, in the US, where they're really building part of the value chain. The question becomes, do you even need to? So back to the point that, that was made around, you know, if you're a bank, the value of your logo versus the stack behind it. Well, what we're seeing is if, if Amanzo can partner with a TransferWise and make the use of, I guess, for the consumer benefit, both of those services, then you're good to go. In an API modulized services world, you can very quickly have a platform whereby you're integrating a number of different providers and the capabilities that you have often can be far superior to what a bank has taken decades to build. It's whales versus schools of fish. How do you get to the point where you can take the best at what they do from you know, the best small suppliers, the specialists, and build them around a core competency? Yeah, but I guess, I guess the, the challenge is exactly what Robin Hood uh, has faced, right? Like, yes, you can take the best of all worlds, but at the end of the day, you just don't own, you don't actually own the user experience and the customer experience. If MasterCards Fs up, then what can they do? Uh, and I think that's kind of uh, why, uh, coming back to this Robin Hood example, they decided our clearinghouse isn't good enough, so we need to build it ourselves. But this is the um, the bottleneck theory, right? You see this with a lot of startups. Um, Monzo had their own, uh, they worked with a payment supplier, and now they've built direct integration to the likes of Visa and MasterCard. So the bottleneck was consistently being this, this payments provider going down or being expensive for them. So the bottleneck moves, and once you've got that beachhead, you can move that bottleneck, which 
which to the point, I don't think any of us are doubting Grab's ability to build a great experience. There is a bit of a doubt from what I'm hearing about MasterCard's ability to live up to their end of the bargain. But if it gets them the beachhead and proves that the thing works, who's to say that they wouldn't move past that? It's, it's less a, a questioning of MasterCard's ability. They're, they're coming to the table. They're, they're putting effort into it. It's more a realization that the constraints and legacy questions of size, scale and age that are constraining the average bank also apply to MasterCard, irrespective of the billions that have been sunk into upgrading and upskilling that that capability. It's also a very different monetization model, a very different cost of running the business that will be reflected somewhere along the way of what they're trying to do. I think there are two very important things that are sort of hinted at. One is the art of the possible and the fact that you could do this amazingly well relies on a series of choices, architectural choices, prioritization choices that humans will need to make. There is scope to do them well, there is scope to do them badly and iterate, and there is scope to sort of fall somewhere in the middle. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. The other thing that you've all touched on, I totally agree with, it's about how you take the customer on this journey. The way that this is framed is something that could be valuable for everybody and potentially could be. But the type of capabilities and type of interfaces and type of functionality you would need to capture the needs of the unbanked driver versus the user who just wants seamless integration to the other stuff they do, very different, right? And which way they're going to take it um, will be an interesting one because the the competitors will be close on their heels. But it is something that is absolutely needed for that market. It's something that will actually ignite the debate. Um, if they focus on inclusion and the needs of the driver population, it will do a world of good that can be exported to other regions. It's certainly a big market that they're going after. Um, I've got to move us to the next story. The next story comes from Fenextra and uh, speak about an attention-grabbing headline. Um, apparently, most banks will be made irrelevant by 2030. Let's just let that one hang for a second. This comes from Gartner. Um, Within 12 years, 80% of heritage financial firms will either go out of business or be rendered irrelevant by new competition, changing customer behavior, and advancements in technology. They'll be replaced by global digital platforms, fintech companies, and other non-traditional players. Uh, David Furlonger, vice president and in air quotes, distinguished analyst at Gartner says banks face an alarming risk of failure if they continue to maintain 20th century business and operating models. This sentence we had highlighted, which I think is is a, a killer one. Digital transformation is largely a myth as institutional mindsets, processes and structures stand firm. Established financial services providers will have to move faster on digital business by building platforms or finding niche products and services to sell to sell on others' platforms. So of the remaining 20%, in other words, not the 80% that are going to go out of business, you'll see the following. You'll see power law firms, companies that are on a platform, fintechs, um, and then long-tail firms, basically everybody else. 80% is pretty high. 80% of banks are going to go out of business in 12 years? No, <laughs> <laughs> said the recovering banker in the room. Yeah, no. What do you think about this, guys? I mean, it's a attention-grabbing headline, like you said. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that the headline of banks are in decline is anything new, but that's basically what the story is about, right? It's, it's about, you know, the challenges of digital and banks not um, keeping up with it. And you see in other industries, you've had retailers gone through that process. Like, I mean, Amazon, Alibaba, like two of the top five retailers globally, and they've been, what, around 25, 20 years. And so there's been big transformation in other industries, and it's going to happen 
happen in banking. We all know it's why we're all here. Um, and uh, and, and, and yeah. how, how can you create an 80%? It's just spurious numbers to grab a headline. It goes bang and then it's kind of wheeled back as the article <laughs> continues, maybe. It's, it's, it's like a punch in the face. made irrelevant by competition. It's punch in the face followed by a lot more hugs. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean that. Now you should hire us because... Uh, well, if we take a step back from the actual specifics on numbers, because it's all an estimate from wherever it comes from, you have a broader point in, in that, well, banks, as we recognize them today, become less relevant. And it's connected to the previous story, whereby uh, what do we mean by banking services? In that essentially one part of it is to connect borrowers and savers. Well, you have PTP platforms that are doing that very effectively now. Another component is to enable investments, be it in local communities or elsewhere. And that has been a troubling function for a while. But then again, you have all these crowdfunding platforms and other means by which investments can be made directly from the consumer. There's a broad theme, firstly, that it's becoming a lot more decentralized and then users are able to gain access to financial services using different means. And secondly, it, it, that many traditionally non-banks are now able to offer the same services as banks are, sometimes with a better customer experience. So broadly speaking, uh, banks had it good for hundreds of years. And in more recent times, you know, there is a question around half the world's adult population are underbanked and unbanked. So a whole portion of the world being underserved. And those who are served typically have a very poor experience. So there's just so much room for innovation. And it's the just key, giant opportunity, isn't it? Key point is, is, is the online banks, banks that came along up until even two years ago, they weren't all... Uh, taken seriously in, in a legitimate way. But what has happened in the last two years has been very interesting. And that these online banks, although it's still very early days, they've been able to show that they're as scalable, the consumers can't get enough of them, and that they're able to show that, be it uh, their control on risk, on fraud, on being able to go global, they're just continuously proving the, the mainstream banks wrong. And that's why the mainstream banks are not only investing in them, but adopting their practices and techniques. I think the thing that I heard a lot from bankers over the last few years was, oh, but regulation is our moat. Regulation will keep big tech away. Regulation will stop the fintechs. And there was a sort of a reliance on that they're regulated, so they're fine. But to your point, I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, I do think it's becoming more competitive. I do see how regulation was a big protection barrier in the past. But over the last five years, especially if we take the UK as an example with the FCA, uh, allowing uh, licenses for so the online banks, uh, having the, the regulatory sandbox and basically enabling startups to offer similar services as banks did in a way that protects consumers, but also is helping innovation too. So the regulator with a specific mandate of creating competition, be it PSE2, open banking and other things, has definitely helped it along. Uh, and it is, seems to have been sort of too slow for, for mainstream banks to catch on to what the actual opportunity really is, and that is taking the services they offer global. But we're now slowly getting there. I totally, totally agree with everything you said. I, I would caveat it only with, with two obvious but essential remarks. One is that the change in both the competitive landscape and the regulation means that it attacks profitability. So the, the thing that changes first is how profitable traditional banking is, and that will have a knock-on effect on the structure of the organization and, and, the, and the, the behavior um, more so than, than the competition directly has because, you know, it's, it's the nature of the beast. But the second thing is that um, the biggest change, both from a regulatory perspective and from a competitive um, perspective, has been on the retail side of banking. And retail has never been the most profitable piece of the banking life cycle or of the balance sheet of a universal bank. So with the exceptions of the banks that are high street only, retail is a piece of the puzzle that doesn't often 
translate the urgency of what um, that part has has definitely felt to the rest of the organization. So when we read this from the viewpoint of a, of a retail bank, then you can see how it's alarmist and attention grabbing, but not entirely outside reality. As you start moving down the sort of wholesale, um, sort of wholesale side of the of the banking infrastructure, none of that disruption is is truly felt yet. But it is a matter of time, and it is the regulator that is kind of championing the cause by attacking the way services are delivered because other things are now possible and therefore how services are charged. And I think we will see the regulator actually being the force, to your point, that transforms the rest of the banking infrastructure by saying, I know a better way is now possible. So do it. I actually, uh, I think the, the regulation aspect is interesting and is obviously relevant. I actually would say that the customer um, education or the market education is the more um, relevant point. Um, so if you look at uh, what Amazon did to retail, it was, yes, you can deliver uh, products within a day. Uh, yes, you can return anything that you want. And then all of a sudden, the market expects that you have these kind of services. And so then you have... Um, other retailers who sort of had to up the table stakes. Um, so I, I actually think um, as these sort of new propositions in the in the retail space, and then I'm sure there will be other areas of disruption within the banking area, um, educate the market with new propositions. I think that's what's really going to what's really sort of going to drive change uh, much more than regulation, because ultimately that's the stronger force, right? It's, it's sort, of, sort of a bottom up grassroots approach from the customer. So regulation brought in PSD two, but didn't bring about APIs. Whereas the challenger banks using APIs APIs well, the big techs using APIs well will create a level of competition, which may change the conversation in terms of the PL. If your top line is declining and your costs are getting higher every year, then that's not something you want. And the only uh, response big banks have had over the past decade has been one of two things: they either do uh, they use their deposits to fund their balance sheet and do better on the in, in the investment in the capital markets, or uh, they've been sort of reducing costs. And cost had been the strategic battleground for the past 10 years. But you can't keep cutting forever. You can't outsource everything till eventually your service is so bad that nobody wants to use it. So that's the slow death of a bank is you just sell off bits and sell off bits and sell off bits and you're left with no identity anymore. Um, so why why is there a brand? You know, Why isn't the brand acquired? And a huge amount of what the spend is on then become, and it is already, is on the maintenance of these massive legacy systems which have been built in the UK in particular from banks who've acquired multiple businesses over the year and still have these legacy systems of that bank and this bank and the systems don't talk to one another and actually they're spending the vast majority of their money on just maintaining these crazy systems and they don't have the resources to then invest and as these things get eaten away all that's left is this big cost absolutely true but in defense of the bankers again i i always end up wearing this hat there is a an element of utility and plumbing that will need to be provided that to your point Simon does not carry any real brand value but it's still essential it's unglamorous and although the current legacy infrastructure is struggling a bit with it quite a lot of it still sort of chugs along comfortably uh, with patches and all the rest the profitability of running that is going down the cost of replacing that is going up so perversely provided incumbents are happy to make less and be less jazzy, there is an advantage of having already built it in that you can provide that utility thing, but that's what it is. It's plumbing. To partly disagree uh, in in that uh, the plumbing, I think, over time is the piece that's going to become less relevant so that 
essentially you now have uh, in Japan Ripple being used uh, across the banking world. Yeah, but you still have, clears uh, and settles at the back end. But but in the US you have Zelle, that is banks getting together and using the Zelle rails to, to facilitate payments. But it still clears and settles at the back end, so the plumbing goes really deep. Sure, so th- there may come a point, I guess, crypto has no banking infrastructure whatsoever. It's purely P2P and using cryptography. A friend of mine, Rich Crook, calls real fintech, right? Because fintech at the moment had been the customer experience and it had gone deeper because then it might even replace an entire bank. It might even replace an entire vertical of a bank, but it hadn't replaced the core infrastructure. And I think this is is Leader's point, is even if I use Ripple, there's still a bank on the other side. Even if I use uh, crypto, I still need to cash that out into real money to spend it somewhere else. There's still a bank on the other side. That may not always be the case that may change but it's not in the short term so there is a a window of opportunity well my point is is that it's the plumbing quote-unquote of the banks that isn't what's going to save them that's part of the reason of their demise that's what's slowing them down so if we were to shift and focus on the 20 percent that are highlighted on the report that are likely to do well and there are notable examples or exceptions to the mainstream banking uh, trend and and if you look at Barclays in some ways, but definitely BBVA. I mean, they've redone their whole stack and they're able to be a lot more competitive as a result. So it's a case of updating the stack end-to-end, going digital, and therefore being able to have an effective and sustainable long-term. I actually fully agree with you. I think if you look at, um, you know, with the robo-advisors being sort of the, the, I think at the start of the fintech trend here in in the UK, certainly, really it's just sort of window dressing what they're doing. Uh, If you take a cynical view, and then I think actually, if you take another cynical view, a lot of the um, fintech propositions that we see today, again, they're just an interface, right? And I think uh, we at Finimize hosted an event uh, and uh, the MD of eToro was there, and he actually raised a very interesting point, saying, we really dropped the ball. We, we we could have really reformed finance and we didn't. And instead, we've just built beautiful interfaces, but the core is exactly the same. And so his point was crypto is the first time when you could actually rebuild finance from the ground that's up. That's real fintech. And I think the oh, transaction... Oh, he's getting passionate now. But, but that's, that, that's, I think the, the transaction bankers and the investment bankers are starting to get that joke now. I think it, it was seen as that thing over there that happened in retail that didn't really impact me and my job and my and my shoes and my briefcase and I'm fine. It's never going to get me because the real thing is about this thing that happens in a marble building. But actually that's starting to change and there's a lot changing. I, I agree with that, but I disagree with the sentiment behind it. And I sort of slightly disagree with Hussein's conclusion, although I agree with the thought process. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the point is, if you follow the money, it goes, it goes really deep. The reason that banking has been so entrenched as an industry is that quite a lot of it is still paper mirroring and it's complex and it only makes any sense at great scale, particularly as you get down the sort of custodial, transactional, correspondent banking, clearing houses and all of that exciting stuff that I've spent so much of my life doing. Um, all of that stuff has not been disrupted yet. It could be. And, and DLT is where the real, real disruption could come from. But for now, even the challengers that have started realizing that actually... There is value in plumbing, and you used a, a number of examples, and they're going deeper and deeper and deeper. For as long as the the money life cycle is not taken out of traditional banking, there is still the sunk cost of having built that infrastructure. So until a 
a challenger comes in that doesn't challenge the incumbents to build, but actually brings an alternative infrastructure? Because that's where the challenge came with the fintechs, right? They said, I'm building something better, faster and cheaper. But there's no there's no obvious moment in which that happens. And I think that's going to be the frustrating thing is that with, with the Amazon example, there was no obvious moment in which the retailers plumbing suddenly went away and disappeared. Like big retailers still exist, but they're now having to fight it 20 years later. And, and I really do think we're looking at that time horizon for that like uh, existential threat uh, is is that sort of time horizon. But the time horizon for sort of actually I could grab an opportunity, I could serve a new market, I could drive growth. When as an as an incumbent, I'm in a position where uh, my top line may be declining, it may be going up with the market, but I'm not seeing that growth that my investors really want to head off those activist shareholders. Then I, then I need to be in that position, guys. I know we want to talk more about this one. I got to move us to the next story. I will be on it all day. Um, the next story comes from Reuters and a US state banking regulator is suing the government to stop fintech charters. Um, So a body of the US banking regulators on Thursday sued the office of the comptroller of the currency, the OCC, we're down with the OCC, over its plan to issue bank charters to online lenders and payments companies. So this is the um, Conference of State Bank Supervisors, the CSBS, Love that it's the BS. Um, And so-called fintech charter was unconstitutional and puts consumers and taxpayers at risk. The CSBS filed the complaint in Colombia saying, common sense and the law tell us that a non-bank is not a bank. Thus, the CSBS is calling on courts to stop the unlawful, unwarranted expansion of powers by the OCC. Uh, John Ryan of the CSBS, BS, President and CEO said in a statement. It follows the suit by the New York DFS. Um, the OCC didn't um, immediately respond, but has defended its authority. Several fintech companies told Reuters in August that they'd be cautious about applying for the OCC license while there's all of this legal wrangling going on. Um, God, the US OCC fintech charter seems like a panacea for fintechs. It maybe doesn't look so great at the moment. Uh, U.S. regulation. <laughs> Fun and games. <laughs> Just so many regulators in the U.S. And we're going to trigger that one U.S. lawyer who likes to write us every time we talk about um, fintech. So shout out to that guy who's trying to sell his book. Um, but uh, but for, for everybody else that's not that guy, uh, what I find interesting about this is this is really, really challenging when you're a fintech trying to enter the market. Like you're trying to do something real and legit. You're trying to build a business. You're trying to launch a business and acquire customers. It's not clear where you go and where you start. And on the other hand, you've got the state of Arizona, you've got other states making real attempts to, to welcome fintech into their market and solve consumer problems. It just seems like uh, there's, there's a gr- real grapple here going on for fintech good, we want to support it, and other folks being like, no, no, we want to support the big bank lobby. Like it's, it's hard to tell what do you do as a fintech? How do you enter this market? And this is happening in, in many ways across the world. So we had the... What you, the online bank licensing happening in the UK. In Hong Kong, we're about to have licensing for the, these online banks. In the US, that this is one of the ways that it's sort of being stopped because if we take a step back, uh, like financiers in many ways rule the world. And at the heart of that are the big Who banks. Who run the world? 
<laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help that. I don't see that can't, being can't, a hit. Can't Thank blame you. The point is, is that if they did not see it as a threat, they wouldn't be too concerned. Exactly. And when you see the rise of Chime, Simple, Moneyline, more and more of these platforms, like they're coming along, they can be in, in a whole host of others and offering services that the consumers absolutely love. And oh. what the what is worrying these mainstream banks to begin with right now is that the smartphone generation, the millennials, the sign-ups to the mainstream banks is really flattening or going down sharply. So that is this is one of the tactics to delay it, but it's an inevitable. And what we saw recently was Varro uh, were the first bank in the US to have their own charter and their own tech platform. So a lot of the banks had previously relied on Bancorp uh, as the platform in the back end. You hadn't seen a bank with its own platform. So now Varro Money is in this really... So that you were at this inflection point for the US market where you could see something real, but also you've got Marcus by Goldman, you've got Finn by Chase, although Finn by Chase, I'm sorry, guys, but it just reads like 65-year-olds uh, trying to do millennial speak. It's horrific. Marcus uh, doesn't have a nap. Sit down. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't have a nap, but you know what? It does what it needs to. It's kind of fine. Oh, there's another one. Every time I, I'm co-hosting the show, my co-host is in love with Marcus. We really need to like start vaccinating the team. To be fair, 1.5% in the UK, and now everybody's copying them. It, it was a smart move. It's not great, but it's good enough. I think with, with fintechs, I mean, entering the US market is challenging because of the regulation. But what you find and what you've seen is they find a way around it. They partner. They they find someone. You know, we, we actually entered the US in 2013. And the year before, there'd been this big furore about the Jobs Act. And it was going to support and it was going to make it easier um, to do on a national level. We were going to be able to operate nationally. That took four years to be signed in title three and it was so watered down so the message to fintechs is you can't wait for this regulation it's going to take so long you need to figure out how do we how do we actually operate in a world within those constraints i think that makes complete sense and we see that there are state by state is what you've had to do in the u.s for a while there are states that are specialists in what they do start their land and expand listen we've got to go for a break and we'll be back shortly I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. Uh, do you wish you'd been at our latest live shows? Lita, do you? 
Yes. Yeah, I know you do. You have the FOMO. <laughs> well, if you're in London on the 14th of November, then head to ZeroCon, where David and Sarah will be hosting Fintech Insider Live. Uh, they'll bring that FI magic as only they can, and David will mispronounce names as only he can. Um, and he'll be joined by some seriously epic guests. Uh, somebody said earlier to me that ZeroCon is like the Comic-Con for accountants. So now I've got in mental images that you just wouldn't believe. I just... Uh, I, but apparently... That is not a thing. They, they really bring it. Like, you should see the video from last year. It's an incredible event. Uh, and make sure you're following us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter to get the latest updates. All right, on with the show. The next story is about Initiative Q. Don't know if anybody came across this thing this week, but wow. Um, so this the story we picked up was from Initiative Q. You've probably heard about it from some random person that you've not spoken to on Facebook for about 10 years asking you what Initiative Q is because you work in finance, therefore you must know about it. Uh, is it the new Bitcoin or one big fake scam? Um, well, I, I want your opinions. Reach out at Fintech Insiders. Drop us an email, podcast at 11fs.com. We need your opinions. Um, but it is social media's latest trend. Um, for, Apparently, Q is the currency of the future, which is distributed to early adopters for free. Q was announced by Saar Wolf, uh, who founded Fraud Sciences, which was acquired by PayPal in 2008. There's... Very little real information out there. No one knows if it's real or fake. Um, Don't ask for any money, so there's no financial risk to those who sign up. They're saying it's not a cryptocurrency. Um, They're saying clumping Q with cryptocurrency nonsense completely misses the point. We're doing something way more interesting. It's a way for the world to come together and solve economical problems that impact every person on the planet, which until now were unsolvable due to financial structures created centuries ago. No one seems to have any idea if this thing is a scam or not. Uh, the only details come from David Gerard, an author of uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, which is a great title for a book. Um, it, it's not impossible they'll get something up, but pure ideas are near worthless. The hard part is execution. Um, th- he said uh, he later went on to say, I think the chances of uh, you getting anything are almost zero um, from signing up. You might get targeted by spammers. Um yeah, so this doesn't ask for money, but does ask for your personal data. Is that how they're going to... Like, what is this? Does anybody know? I saw I saw it on my uh, Facebook feed the other day from a f- person I went to school with who I haven't spoken to in, in probably 20 years, actually. And I think it's quite fascinating. To me, it seems... Uh, there's this wave of these sort of new growth hacks that used to be sort of these wait lists that, you know, Robinhood really uh, took off, etc. And then now you have other sites like 99 cents. I don't know if you guys have seen that where you pay 99 cents to see who else paid 99 cents. And that's the entire page. And that went really sort of viral online as well. And then I came across this and uh, to be honest, I, I read it and it seemed like a very, very complicated referral program. Um, and it felt like a scam. The only question is um, whether it is sort of the people who worked there, I think, were at PayPal before or got acquired by PayPal. So maybe that gives it a little bit of legitimacy, but it's very, very intransparent. Well, it's the language, isn't it? Encouraging users to sign up quickly to get free entry with early adopters enjoying higher rewards. That does make you think, ooh, pyramidy. Because a pyramid scheme is, by definition, a business model that recruits members via a promise of payments or services for enrolling others to the scheme. But it's a pyramid data where getting your data is the, out- the outcome for them, not getting your money. Well, there's no free lunch, right? They, they're going to utilize that data. 
Even if this turns out to be an incredibly legit, impactful, meaningful, socially revolutionary goodness, which I have a million question marks about in case my tone of voice did not convey that, mm-hmm. um, they're going to make use of whatever you give them. There is no such thing as a freebie. I think I, I think I totally agree with you. It is a growth hack, right? It is how do we get to mass adoption of this new thing very quickly? And yeah, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? The quote of like saving the planet's problems and it really um, solving it. There's no clear view as to how that happens, so it's, it's very opaque at the moment. They're going to make currency user, <laughs> But if you're a user, the upside of you know you could uh, you, you are sold on this. You know you're going to make money quick. It's very exclusive and all this kind of thing. Versus the downside of a little bit of embarrassment it's, it's quite a compelling proposition it's quite a good bet it, right? it reminds me a little bit of the ICO uh, trend back in the day when it's sort of like we're raising money we don't really know what we're going to do yet um, but be part of it and it worked and I think here the fascinating thing is it works like people are doing it FOMO cells we're uh, witnessing the end of humanity <laughs> This this is yeah it is literally Nietzsche's uh, last man isn't it? But the, but there are challenges. I mean, there's challenges with cryptocurrency. There's challenges around the stability, around the level, of the inefficiency, around the level of energy uses. You know, so there is a there is a world where you can kind of create a currency which solves this stuff, but it's very hard to do. And they're trying to solve the one piece around mass adoption by doing this growth hack. Seems like they're doing a relatively good job of that. But the other stuff is hard, right? The attention grabbing is interesting. And did anybody else see Initiative Q and? think about star trek or is that just me um the q character no i'm all on my own on that one for the five trekkies out there that was for you um so that wasn't about cryptocurrency but if you do want to learn about crypto we do of course have blockchain insider our sister podcast which is available on itunes now all right next up well monzo are a fintech unicorn the story comes from the next web and they described them i love this trendy challenger bank monzo is britain's latest unicorn all that orange all that orange They secured £85 million funding round, um, giving them a valuation of a billion pounds sterling, which is a bit more than a billion US. Investors include Stripe, interestingly, uh, Axel Ventures and General Catalyst. Um, If you were looking for people in your cap table, those are generally considered pretty good ones to have. Um, Most notably, the companies also relied on uh, equity crowdfunding and uh, plans to raise a further £20 from ordinary retail investors later this year. And they're going to use the latest influx of cash to increase the size of the workforce as it wrestles with a rapidly growing user base. So any thoughts on this one? Great news for UK fintech. I think continues to be mass amount of investment in the space. Well done, Tom and team. I think you continue to grow um, a really exciting business. So I think it's it's, it's really encouraging um, for everyone for everyone in the, in, in the sector. To be honest, and yeah, I think how they choose to expand it, and how they expand that, and how they continue to think about that customer base and monetizing it further. They've got a great product at the moment that customers love. How can they expand that? And this is a decent amount of money to give them runway to do that. And then, sure, it's turning some heads in the financial services where everything's very metrics-driven. And if you were just to purely look at metrics, uh, it is a healthy valuation because it's far more than just the numbers. It's the promise and it's the growth rate. And it's where, I guess, uh, it's a bet on the future in many ways. And so we partner with them. It's a great team, as as you mentioned. So I'm partly conflicted. But if we take sort of the unfeeder relationship out of uh, that, it's, it's generally impressive and a sign of things to come. 
Did anybody see that they published their uh, unit economics this week as well? Uh, um, that, to me, is the more interesting story here. They tell you how they make money on every customer. They told the world, including their customers, how they make money from them and line by line. Yeah. But as an early customer and one that has continually loved them, and I have not ever before continually loved any bank I've done business with or been employed by, sorry, guys, um, that gave me a lot of reassurance because I've been on the show before saying that valuations are challenging because they they create a certain set of expectations on one side that don't always translate to business sustainability and profitability. And as, yeah, exactly. Well, it's also a potential amazing exit strategy, which will work well for the team and and good on them. And in having done what they do, they will have changed banking forever. But that doesn't mean that the business itself will become sustainable. And looking at those metrics, that voice was um, very happy because it shows profitability it, and it shows a path to growth and sustainability that that goes beyond that valuation I guess, I guess from play a devil's advocate a, a little bit on this um, my, my concern as an end consumer is that as these banks or challenger banks like a monzo like a revolut start getting bigger and bigger it feels like they're moving more and more towards becoming like a more traditional bank in the sense if i look at revolut they are hardcore trying to push their uh, affiliate products onto you every time i open the app oh why don't have you a get metal it? card have yeah. a metal card no well, that, that's fine, but 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 I don't want a insurance right now. Why are you pushing me insurance? And it feels like I, when I open my Barclays account, that's kind of the same experience. And then if I look at sort of what Monzo is planning to do, you know, they've removed the or they've they've introduced the ATM restrictions. I read something today. I think they're introducing more and more sort of restrictions on what you can do. And it feels like if they are starting to then really focus on profitability, maybe all the nice stuff that made these challenger banks interesting from a consumer point of view are going to slowly erode. I'm not saying that's going to happen. That's my concern. I think that's going to be the acid test. That's going to be the acid test because people love these things. But do they love them for the economic value or do they love them because of the experience? And I think that's almost a religious debate. You fall down on one side. So I talk to a lot of people who go, well, I'll never move to them because I get better APR from somewhere else even though the experience is great. And I talk to other people who live in their Monzo account day to day just because the experience is so good mm. and they have better rates elsewhere and they're willing to suffer those worse experiences elsewhere because of the better rates. Um, but actually, if the rates even out, then then does that become a thing? What, what I liked about um, when Monzo introduced the ATM fee is they had this conversation on their blog with their community about, well, here are our options. We have to do this. We have to reach profitability. Yeah. But that's a very uh, power user thing, right? I think for the mass market, you know, I'm, I don't really care about that, to, to be cynical. Uh, if I go abroad, I, I will then use Revolut instead. But will the mass market love them the way the early adopters did as well? And will that net promoter score that you know has been great for the first million be great for the second, third and fourth million? I think the jury's out. But then you could have asked these questions a year ago about will they convert people from a prepaid card to a current account? Or, you know, there's, there's so many things that could have been stumbles along the way that they've proven um, in the past. So there's, there's at least form there. For me, the asset test is... And I think what I think the, the core value driver is, is, and the reason why consumers love them so much is, is the extent to the customer service uh, in many ways. So that my bank, uh, say, say all the mainstream version, it offers me nowhere near as good as my challenger bank experiences. And it's being able to show that not just for a few million, but, but tens of millions, especially if there's uh, as, it, as it goes global. So being able to give customers that sort of using technology and chatbots and things like that to enhance that experience in such a blowout way will hopefully see 
them continue to grow. Yes. And in, in a similar way, uh, they and all the online banks, to a large extent, get to see what users want from a consumer experience standpoint, not from a user uh, sort of design perspective. Because a lot of these banks now have nice apps, and that's a UI point. But what the challenger banks are offering is user experience end-to-end. So it's all online, no hassle in the sense that you can easily sign up that. and you can easily run I with it. I would challenge that. I would say that with growth, quite a few of the challengers are finding quite a lot of breaks in the user experience, particularly on the unhappy path. Monzo is one of the ones who's consistently doing it well, to your point, by not resorting to humans, because the that doesn't test scale. test for me is if they're able to keep that blowout customer experience at tens of millions. Absolutely. If anything out of this, I think coming back to the Gartner report, I think this is a great example where um, challengers are really, really sort of shaking things up. And I think now that's exactly what will either uh, kill a bank or will, if they are fast to adapt. And I think Barclays is actually doing a decent job in the UK. Of- so they're reaching feature parity, but are they getting that love from the customers? So that, that feature parity is not the same as uh, customer experience parity. If I can give you the ability to toggle your card on and off, to freeze your card, for those of you that haven't used that, this is the ability to literally use your app and freeze your card so that nobody could use that card and then unfreeze your card. So so that card is ready to use again. Unlose your card. I quite like that. Yeah. Unfreeze, but yeah. No, uh, it unloses the advertising approach, and I like it. Like, I lost it. I found it. I unlost it. Yeah, it's good. It's clever. Yeah, that's that's okay. Yeah, I like that. That's quite neat. But it, that's that's copying the features, which is sort of like copying an airline pilot. Like I can copy their movements. I can even wear their outfit, but I can't fly a plane. So, well, like, you put it like that. It's quite scary. But can I challenge the love component? Because from a geek community perspective, loving my bank is something that I'm prepared to do. But my mom doesn't want to love her but bank. Your mom doesn't have to. Right. So the, the thing that really got me is I was um, my now fiance invited me to uh, drinks with uh, a couple of friends of hers about three or four months ago. And these people work in advertising. They work in insurance. They work in all kinds of things that have nothing to do with fintech, don't care about fintech. And one you friend, said I can't come to those drinks. Yeah. I don't talk to people outside the industry. What? So one friend starts talking to another about Monzo, completely unprompted by either of us. Just like this thing, they've, they've started asking me whether or not they should charge an ATM fee. And I, I, I just think it's really cool that's not your mum, it's not you, it's not the fintech nerds, it's something else. This is a a customer who is loving the way their bank is communicating with them, and that's the magic. It's not the feature in the app, it's not the colour of the card, it's the the, the entire end-to-end how they communicate with their customers. They've raised the bar. That's, that's, I think, the the, the key point. They've raised the bar for everybody in the market. I I totally agree with that, but I will hold on to the fact that you cannot rely on people loving you if what you provide is a service that needs to be... It goes against everything we were saying at the beginning of the show, right? Banking services need to be absorbed into the experience and people don't want to interact heavily with their banks. They don't want to have to love you. So I love Monzo. Because it gets out of the way, though. But why? Because I think kind of going back to some of the other conversations we've had, like it's it's that core experience, like thinking about the consumer, thinking about how they operate, how they go about their life, and bringing financial services into that in almost a seamless way, right? So making life easier through financial services, so it doesn't become a you almost don't recognise it as here's here's my bank that I have a love hate relationship with. <laughs> Sorry, but how is this making my life? 
easy and seamless and frictionless. And I think that is so different and so core about what um, Amonzo are doing, what a lot of challenger banks are doing. It's just that different mentality. It's that jobs to be done mentality is they've understood the job that needs to be done. Why am I hiring my bank? I'm not hiring my bank because I want to know the balance of my account. I'm hiring my bank because I want to know if I've been paid or if I can afford to buy that thing. And actually, the people that have understood that, this has been a meme in banking, like you don't want to get a mortgage, you want to buy a house. And people have been saying that for years, but they haven't understood it. And the fact that you can parrot that sentence doesn't mean you get it. And so I think being able to design great products as a result of having that insight is something that they've done. Like I I can understand that Usain Bolt can win the 100 meters. I can even buy the same shoes. I could wear the same outfit, but I'm not going to win that race. And I think there's something about being great at product is is there's a bit of an art going on in there. And and can we learn what those nuances are? Because it's not just going to be a a copying thing. And if you want to learn those nuances, well, um, there's episode 242 of Fintech Insider, which was challenging the banking battlefield, uh, which was our most popular episode ever. So it does seem like people want to learn some of that stuff. We have a couple of interviews, of course, with Monzo and others as well on the YouTube channel. So taking quite a change of gear. Uh, Our and finally story is particularly Brexit focused. Apparently, there will be a special 50 pence coin marking Brexit. Um, Marking the UK's departure from the European Union, the coin will be made available in spring 2019, but it's not known exactly what the Brexit coins will look like, nor Brexit itself. Um, Last year, the Royal Mint issued more than 66 million 50 pence pieces in five different designs featuring Beatrice Potter, Peter Rabbit, Tom Kitten, Jeremy Fisher and Benjamin Bunny, um, as well as the physicist Isaac Newton. This year, it minted two special 50p coins, one to mark the 60th anniversary of uh, the first Paddington, Paddington Bear book. All of that seems quite cuddly. And then you get the Brexit coin. Um, oh. can, can I just say that I have been away for, for two years, obviously. I've only been back for about two months. And in those two months, um, I have not used any money because it is entirely possible to not actually use any physical cash. So oh, I, I thought you were spending missed. love somehow. No, no, yeah. Like, so, do you know who I am? You're not going to charge me for him. No, no, I've been using sort of my Apple Pay and, and my beloved Monzo card and all the rest of it. But... Um, I missed all of that. So now I need to go spend real cash so that I can get Peter Rabbit coins back um, and not wait for Brexit that will forever taint Paddington Bear for me. So I was particularly jet lagged yesterday and I came home and decided to do what I do when I'm particularly jet lagged, which is watch Dave, the TV channel. Um, And for some reason, Dave, the TV channel has an advert at the moment from uh, a company in London that sells you all kinds of different one pound coins with different designs on them. So you can get a one pound coin for just 99 pounds with a special design on it. And I'm like... Who are the? I'm sure if you're out there and you love collecting coins, I'm sorry. I don't mean to mess with your tribe. You're really, really cool and somebody loves you. But I don't understand. I don't either. If the whole point is to have something that makes us proud of Britain and what, what we can achieve. Uh, so I'm all for that sentiment. But the delivery of that with a, a physical coin, as was mentioned, like we, we hardly, well, often don't use these coins. And, and having it on a 50p, sort of a, a lower currency coin at that, it's not something that signals the future or what the opportunities could be. I mean, if it, if it was a local digital currency being launched to the UK alone or some, something something of those, but it should be. If, if the sentiment or the purpose here for whatever is that, that marked by the 
Brexit sort of time period, if it's something that is going to galvanize and sort of help give something for people to look forward to, there, there could have been more futuristic things to, to do. To borrow a phrase, an outward-looking UK might want something more ambitious than this. Um, you know, an outward-looking UK might want some policy, might want some ideas, might want some opportunity. And there are some interesting things coming out. The, the, I, I really thought the idea around robo-regulation, which was horribly titled, but this idea that uh, instead of doing regulation through spreadsheets, we'll actually start, start setting up digital ways in which we do reporting and you could be digital first in how you deal with the regulator. Things like that are interesting, but just the this this just lacks imagination. For me, the big question is whether uh, there will be a euro coin commemorating uh, sort of a waving hand to the UK. <laughs> just a middle finger, just be like, <laughs> we, we Brexited you. Um, at which point will the euro coin pass the pound in value as well? Well, that, 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 that's the, the misery association and kiss my own feelings about Brexit are not clear enough. Is How, how far do we expect this 50p coin to get us like are we expecting such a massive devaluation that this will be an iconic um i i have my own concerns around that the the forced attempt at creating a celebration atmosphere around this event is is failing yeah i mean it's not it's not a celebratory well i'm for the sentiment in that we are where we are and we should sort of focus on the advantages that can come from it it's just the the way to execute that this is a as, as as an effort and i'm sure many will like it I think there could have been other methods that would have been this more effective. This feels more like a fart in church well, than it I, does like a real celebration, right? I oh, mean, what it, an image, Simon. It, but it is. It's, it's gone down like a lead balloon, whereas actually, I don't know what the answer is, but you could have done something more uniting, right? You could have done something... This is pandering to the audience, though. I think for people who voted for Brexit and stick by those guns, this celebrates Britishness and, and a stiff upper lip that will will resonate with that audience, the people who have questions about sort of marching into the unknown and severing commercial ties and moving away from regulation that helps our pharmaceuticals industry and our agriculture and all the rest of it, this is not going to console in any way, but it's not for us. I did see an excellent tweet which had a picture of the new 50p Brexit coin, it's pound coin there, which I thought was excellent. (laughs) This is going to be interesting because it's going to be really easy to tell whether it's successful or not because in 10 years, we're going to go on eBay and compare the Brexit coin to the Isaac Newton coin and see which one's going to be selling for 50 pence and which one for a pound. See you back on the show then. I think the discovery of gravity has been pretty useful. Um, <laughs> it hasn't let me down, that's for sure. All right, Addington um, is useful too. Yeah. Puns aside, that brings us to the end of our show. Um, so uh, where can people find out more about you, Lida? Um, opposite Simon in the office yeah. or at Lida Glyptis on Twitter. Brilliant. How about yourself, Max? Um, at uh, Whole Earth Web on Twitter. That's a very long story. Wow, that's a long Twitter handle. No, Whole go into web. that long story. Um, so I actually got this handle ages ago, and I had a phase where I was really interested in sort of the uh, intersection between the hippie scene and the creation of the internet uh, back in the sort of 60s, uh, 70s. The and then they had uh, this Whole Earth catalog, uh, which Stuart Brand created. Um, and I was sort of really into the Whole Earth catalog. And then sort of Stuart Brand is also, I guess, one of the pioneers of the internet. And so I figured Whole Earth Web. 
would capture their attention and you could get to know them and hug them. Oh, and now I'm stuck with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Here's what it is. How about yourself, Hussein? So in the physical world, with a small little logo that as you sign up to these uh, fintechs in particular, and in the digital world, it is at Hussein Kasai. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And last but not least, Lisa? Not nearly as an interesting story as, as Max. I feel quite let down by my Twitter handle now. It's, it's at Lisa J. Jakes. And for more interesting stuff at Funding Circle, where there's more activity. Brilliant. And for me, at S.Y. Taylor. And, and for you, listener, what do you think of today's stories? Uh, do you think Initiative Q is just a pyramid scheme with a few extra steps? Or is it a great way to get people educated or pay attention to financial services, even if they do fall down a rabbit hole or a scam in the meantime? Let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders. Our favorite tweet will win a bundle of 11FS team swag. So we got t-shirts, we got stickers. Yeah, yeah, you know it. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>